0: So we're in week two of our series, Revive Us. Um, We're talking about spiritual awakening. And uh, before I jump into the message, though, this morning, uh, one of the great things that I love about Cornerstone is that um, you guys, your generosity helps us be able to support uh, not just local ministries, but a lot of missionaries uh, really all over the world. And uh, we've got some missionaries that I would that have come out of this church that are serving in different ways. And if you ever go back in the cafe, we've got a few of those on the wall. Uh, I need to get a few more updated that in post back there. Um, but one that we support is one of our students that came out of Cornerstone that helped us a lot in youth ministry. That was real active in our youth ministry, um, and he's now at Radford University. And he's Snyder. Uh, is here today, and he wants to kind of give you an update about the work he's doing uh, with the, the Ministry Chi Alpha at Radford. So um, I'm just, he come on up and share with us a little bit, and I'd love to hear um, what, what God's doing. So, y'all welcome, Heath.
1: Well, good morning. How's everybody on this morning? You got the morning people here. You've probably been up since six o'clock, probably, if you're here. So, kudos to you. That's not really me. But we need people like you, morning people. So awesome, awesome. So like Mike mentioned, uh, I'm with Chi Alpha Campus Ministries. It's a campus ministry that's kind of a national missions movement on the secular college campuses, not just in the U.S., but internationally. There are Chi Alpha's all over the world. And the goal with Chi Alpha is to reconcile students to Christ And the verse we base out of is 2 Corinthians 5.20, which is we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and we beg you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, be reconciled unto God. Because the world, our nation, our state, and even our little county is filled with people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who need to be reconciled unto God, back to the Father. And there's a way that you all can partner with me and what the work that I'm doing, it's not just a one person does the stuff and we, we cheer them on at, at the church services and it's good to go. But there's a concept in scripture that I would love to talk about this morning. And it's the concept of sending and going. And we see this in Romans 10. We have this great promise in verse 13 that says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which that's great. But as you read on and follow the Scripture, in verse 14, it says, well, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so I just want to share a little story real quick. Just put your, like, imagination caps on and just stay with me. But I want you to imagine there's a man, and he's walking into this village. And as he's about to enter the village, he hears this, this cry for help out, outside the village, like somewhat a little bit far off. So he checks it out, and as he runs, he comes to this great pit. And inside the pit is this young lost child who has fallen into the pit, broken his leg, can't get out. So in his, in his panic, he yells, Are you okay? Are you okay? And the, the little boy cries out, yes, I'm fine, I, I just need to get help, I need help, I need to get out of this pit. And so looking around, he has no idea how to get this boy out. It's a deep pit, he has nothing with him to help, he can't go in there or he'll be stuck too. And so he rushes back to the village, he's sprinting, he's crying out, I need help, there's a lost boy stuck in this pit, he's broken his leg, he can't get out. Who can help me save this boy? And so he walks around and he's... He's, he's searching and he's seeking, and finally someone says, I have this rope. We can use it to get this boy out. And so they, he grabs the rope. These two men, they, they run back to the pit, and they go to lower the rope, but it's not enough rope. They're like, oh, man, we need more rope. We need to get this boy out of this pit. So they both rush back to the village asking for help again. We need help to get this boy out of, the, out of this pit. And then another person says, oh, I have some more rope. Let me, let's come tie our ropes together and save this little boy. So they rush out to the pit once more. And again, the rope is too short to save this little boy. And so the three of them rush back to the village, crying out, please help us, help us, help us. We need to get this boy out of this pit. And then finally, this generous couple says, we have two ropes to help you. Let's save this boy. And so finally, they tie all the four ropes together. And they can let someone down in the pit. And the man who found the boy is able to actually tie himself off go down to the pit and rescue the little boy. And so the question I have for you then is, who is more important? The man who found the boy went to the pit or the people who gave the rope? You see, this boy would not have been saved without either the sender and the goer, the ones who have the rope and the one who found the little boy. And Jesus mentions a similar situation like this with the story of the Good Samaritan. In Scripture, you see, Jesus, we can liken him to the Good Samaritan as he finds all of us who are stuck in the ditch. And this should be important to all of us. It's it's, it's especially important to me because I was once the lost boy in the pit. And I was once the man stuck in the ditch about to die. And all of us either were at that point in some place in our life or you might know someone who is or you might be stuck in the pit yourself and need a Savior. That's why it says in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Of course, calling to our Savior, who is the ultimate bringer of the good news, how beautiful Jesus is. But more importantly, why it should be important to us, because as Scripture says, it was for the joy before Christ that he endured the cross to save us. Not obligation, not a spiritual, I have to because God sent me to do it, but for the joy before him. And so it should be our joy before us that we save others out of the pit, out of the ditch, to reconcile those who are lost. And so if you feel the need to help and partner, just like the ones who gave the rope, the church provides a key role to missionaries. That's how missions functions, is the generosity of the church the rope givers, so to speak. And so, if you want to partner with me in Chi Alpha, God's doing some great things at RAF University. He's bringing some awakenings, some spiritual revivals are happening. We're seeing students ask questions that I've never heard asked before on the college campus about spirituality, God, what's the meaning of life. And there's, while there's a lot of darkness in the world, Scripture says that the light shines brighter in the darkness. And furthermore, if you want to help in another way too, I'm going to Costa Rica in this summer for a month to do campus ministry there. And what we're seeing in Costa Rica is an awakening of campus ministries at the University of Costa Rica. See, Chi Alpha has the privilege of not only partnering here in the United States, but globally, like I mentioned before. And so if you're interested, if you feel the burden to help lend lend your rope, so to speak, I would love to talk with you After the service and give you more details on how to help, um, what to pray for, um, give you more updates personally. Um, And again, it's just an an honor to be up here and just be back and just share my heart with you all of what God is doing. Uh, And I'm honored and blessed to be able to share the good news with those who need it. Uh, And I'm blessed and honored to offer you all the ability to give the rope, you know. I could not do what I do without the church, without the generosity of others. And so, I just want to personally thank you for all that you've already done, um, all the good things that I've been able to do through generosity of other people. Um, It's not possible without the church, without the senders, without the rope givers. And so, again, that's all I have to say to you all. I'm blessed to be here. I'm honored that Mike let me come back, and I just pray this service will touch your heart. Thank you.
0: So doesn't it doesn't excite you to see our students that have kind of moved on, but are still strong in the faith and still sharing about God and still growing. And I, I don't know, it, it blesses me. So thank you, Heath, and thank you, Stevie, for being here this morning. Um, and um, man, it's perfect timing because we're in this series about spiritual awakening, about renewal, about revival. What does it look like? What does it mean? And um, we had a meeting last Wednesday night, if you came to it, uh, had a great time in the Word, and that's uh, last week, that's what we talked about, just getting in the Word. Well, we got together Wednesday night, read the, the Sermon on the Mount, read Romans 12, just read and talked and discussed, and, um, and so we're doing a series of Wednesday night meetings kind of tied in with this. This week, we'll be doing a prayer meeting because we're talking about prayer today, and I think prayer is a struggle for so many Christians. So many of us struggle with prayer. And it's not that we don't want to pray sometimes, it's like we know we should pray, we know we need to pray, we know it's important, but we simply don't make time for it. We simply get so busy with everything else on our schedule that prayer is not a priority. And so what I want to talk about today is just how important it really is, because when it comes to the issue of being revived and awakened, prayer is ultimately where it begins. Uh, we cannot make revival happen, and I, I've talked about that last week. We can't plan it, we can't schedule it, we can't put it on the calendar, but we can ask for it, and we can prepare for it. And so most people operate on this assumption, uh, right, that, well, you know, I, I just don't pray enough, and, I don't, and I'm not prepared enough, and I don't really expect God to do anything, and, and I want to change that. I want to live in an expectant life where we're just waiting and we're preparing and we're asking God to move in supernatural ways and and to change us. C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher of old, he said this. He said, Oh, men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for revival?" men and women whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in the times of former generations. I mean, we don't talk like that anymore. It's like, I mean, he's just praying, God, why don't we go home and pray for a move of God? Why don't we do that? Now, let's go back to our definition of revival to kind of kick things off. And um, this is kind of uh, the definition I wrote out last week. Revival occurs when the Holy Spirit breaks through to a group of people and leads them to repentance, to prayer, to the Bible, to service, so that their world is transformed by the gospel. That's what revival looks like. All right? It's so much more than an emotional experience. It's so much more than a church service. It's a transformation that takes place. And today I want to talk about the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. I'll be there in a few minutes. Um, But Nehemiah is an incredible story. One of my favorite uh, stories in the Old Testament because it teaches leadership. It teaches kind of how Nehemiah had a burden for his people. And so let me kind of give you a quick history lesson. Throughout the Old Testament We see this pattern over and over again with the nation of Israel. They will worship the one true God and they are blessed. But then they turn their backs on God and they are defeated and enslaved. This is this pattern throughout the Old Testament. And so uh, we talked last week right about how God brought the Assyrians and delivered judgment upon Israel, the northern kingdom. And they were taken off into exile. And last week we talked about King Josiah and and the southern kingdom of Judah and how they turned back to God and God blessed them for that generation. But ultimately what happened is they turned their back on God again. And then God used the Babylonians uh, to come and conquer Judah. Uh, That happened um, around 5 Uh, 86 BC. Um, And so God, you know, they ended up for 70 years in captivity in Babylon. While they were there, Persia conquered Babylon. So we had the rise of the Persian empire. And that brings us to Nehemiah because he's in Persia. He's been taken out of Israel. They're in Babylon, now in Persia, Uh, and he was a Hebrew that was living there, and he was serving the king of Persia. And so that's the background, and so I can kind of jump in to share uh, the story this morning. Here's the first thing that I really want you to remember this morning, and it's simply this, a burden for brokenness will lead you to prayer. A burden for the brokenness around you, it's got to lead you to prayer. Prayer. So let's kind of jump in the story of Nehemiah and see how this plays out. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 2. He says, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls uh, the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And so he said, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. So what's happened here, he is serving, right, for the king of Persia, a King Artaxerxes. Ataxerxes. And he gets a report from his homeland. And he doesn't really know much about what's happened there. Again, it's not like they had 24-hour access to the cable news network, right? I mean, they have to find that someone had visited, brought back news, and they just said, it's a mess. It's a mess. The walls are torn down. Um, The gates have been burned. The people are devastated. They're, you know, they're defeated. Um, and, And so Jerusalem is in bad shape. So so let me run a few phrases by you and see if you've heard these, right? What you don't know can't hurt you, right? Have you heard that? Have you heard ignorance is bliss, right? That is kind of the choice that we have to face over and over again throughout life. If we don't know about it, then it doesn't really concern us. It's someone else's responsibility. Ignorance is bliss. And I would say, even for us, like we've seen a change in the last 20 years. We've been so overwhelmed with so many events that are happening around the world that we've been desensitized, right? I'll just be honest. Growing up, we didn't know what was going on around the world, and we really didn't care. Ignorance is bliss. You didn't know about it. And so you would hear about things pop up from time or time again about a famine in Africa or about a a war somewhere, but it was kind of distant. We didn't really think about it. But now with the internet, it's changed our world, right? Now we know about all this stuff. So every single day we're hearing about a problem somewhere and we're desensitized to it. But I want you to think about Nehemiah here. Because when Nehemiah heard the news about his homeland, it... I mean, it, it burned him. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed, he wept. I mean, this deeply touched him. It got his attention in such a way that he had to pray. And, and let me just ask you, when was the last time that the brokenness around you moved you to pray? When was the last time that the brokenness around you moved you to fast and, and moved you to weep? For the hurting and the brokenness all around us. I, again, I just think we're desensitized to it. And he was not just burdened for the broken down walls. He was burdened for the brokenness of his people. So here is what we know. He was a, a Jew, obviously. He was the cupbearer to King Xerxes. And that's a pretty high-ranking position. Basically, he was in charge of setting the table and pouring the drinks and making sure everything was set. And, and the cupbearer had to be extremely trusted. There are a lot of people in this day and age that uh, were, were trying to kill the king and assassinate the king. And obviously, one of the ways to do that would be through his food. So the cupbearer was responsible for making sure that nobody got to his food, right? That, that, that he was protected. And so Nehemiah, when he asked for this report, he heard this report that this news was not good. Um, he, he found out the cities were abandoned, the walls were broken down. He he found out all about this. He was in a unique position though, because he had this position of authority, he had this position of trust with the king, but he was also safe in the king's palace. You think about this; he was comfortable. He had a good job. Uh, in, you know, in our world today, it would be like he had a good paying job. He had job security as long as the king was in power. Um, he was, had all the food he could eat. I mean, he was in a good shape, but yet he was burdened. He was burdened in such a way that he knew he had to do something about this. And so let me just ask you. You know, Nehemiah, when he found out about his city, he knew he had to do something. Do you feel that same type of burden for the city we live in today? Do you really think about the brokenness all around us? Do you have a burden for those people around us, for for their soul, for their brokenness, for their hurt, for their pain? If we look in the New Testament, man, there's so many verses that I could have pulled out and shared. But Romans 9 is one that, that really I thought about this week. He, you know, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I must myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. What we see here is a burden, right? Do do we have those type of burdens anymore? Or are we just so consumed with our own life that we don't really think about others? Paul the, the Apostle, so much of what he did and drove him to go from place to place and plant church after church and go through hardship after hardship was this burden for people that didn't know about Jesus. He said, Therefore, in Acts 20, he said, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. That, that's his heart. I mean, you just feel it when you read Paul's writings that he cares about these people. He cares about their soul. He cares about their brokenness. And and I'll just be honest, I don't think there's any way to say it nicely, but as believers today, we just don't have a burden for the lost anymore. We don't think about it. We're we're afraid of offending people, we're afraid of hurting feelings, we're afraid of what other people will think. And so we just kind of go along and hope somehow they'll end up in church and hear about Jesus. We think it's someone else's responsibility, it's our responsibility. Are we burdened for the world around us? No, the, he was, Nehemiah was burdened because the city walls were broken down. Our city walls today, they're found in our schools, and our homes, in our government, our community. They're broken down all around us. Are we taking hope to them? And are we praying about it because that's what Nehemiah did? But he didn't just pray. Let's, let's read how he prayed. And that, that brings me to my second point. Confession is the first step to real change. When he prayed, you know, he took responsibility. Um, let's return to the story. Verse 5, he said, Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel." I confess, I, I, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. So, this is the first prayer in Nehemiah of like 12 different times that he prayed. Nehemiah was a praying man, he wasn't afraid to pray. And I want you to notice that Nehemiah, he starts by addressing how great and awesome God is. He recognizes the power and position of of God. I mean, he has this fear of God, a respect of who God is. But he also knew his first step was to confess his own sinfulness. He started from a place of humility. He realized that only God could do something about this problem. I'll just say this. We need to repent because the truth is, too often we are part of the problem. We think the problem is something else. We think it's someone else's fault. We think, and we don't realize our own, you know, our own complicity in the situation. And so what Nehemiah does, he begs for mercy as he confesses that all of Israel, including himself, we've disobeyed God's command. He said that's where it starts. He took ownership. He took responsibility. And so again, let me ask you, the brokenness that we see all around us, what responsibility do we have for that? What have we failed to do because we failed to care for those people all around us because we've been too busy? Our first step is saying, God, forgive us. Forgive us for being callous. Forgive us for not caring. Forgive us for just kind of keeping our blinders on and being so busy that we don't see the brokenness, we don't see the pain, we don't see the lost people, and we see them and we don't care about them and we don't tell them and we don't do anything for them because we're too busy. Our first step is confessing. God, break my heart for the things that break yours. God, just burden me. Give me this holy burden for the world around me. And I'm telling you, if you want to see this church revived, if you want to see your life revived, it starts with confession. It starts with this, this idea of confessing that leads to repentance, that leads to change. We, we just don't do that enough. I love that in this Nehemiah, he doesn't say they, he says we. We. He took, on, he took responsibility. And I can tell you from counseling over the years, when you're meeting with someone and, and you're talking, when they start blame shifting, they start blaming the other person. They start blaming everything else. They start blaming the system. They start blaming. You, what you see when that happens is you're, you, you, I just know that, man, it's going to be hard to have a breakthrough. But when someone comes in and says, this is what I've done, I messed up. And they don't say, but they just say, no, it's me. That's when change happens. And I think as a people of God, we've got to come to that point where we're not afraid to say, this is what I've done. God, I, forgive me. It's, this is my fault. We're in the shape that we're in. God, help me to do something about it now. And so confession is that first step to real, to, to real change. But then it leads us to pray. And not just to pray little prayers. This is my next point. God... We need. Don't be afraid to pray God-sized prayers. I think so many times we pray for, God, just give me an opportunity to, to share a little bit. And what about, God, use me to reach this whole community for Christ. God, use this church to make a difference, not just right here in Galax, but around the world. We pray too small. We pray too small. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem, it just grew. It became greater and greater. And his, vis- his vision for what needed to be done became clearer and clearer. And so, and that's what real prayer does. Real prayer, it gives us a bigger burden and it gives us a clearer vision. And, and I'm just telling you, like, real leaders, you see, the, the, you see the, the gap between where we are and where we should be. You see the problem, you see the brokenness, and you know that something needs to be done about it. We've got to pray God-sized prayers. Let's look at, go back to the story, verse 8. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. So, O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So first, he's saying, God... This is what your word says. I'm counting on you. I believe in you. You're going to answer me. I, I, God, I know you can do it. I know you have the ability to meet this request. So what's his request? And what and, and he's he's saying, I want to talk to the king. I want to do something about this problem, I see. And so what it happens, he goes to the king. Let's skip ahead to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. The king asks, Well, how can I help you with a prayer to the God of heaven? So the king says, "Okay, Nehemiah, what's on your heart? You're, so I can tell something's wrong. Just spill it out." And what Nehemiah does, he, I love this. He kind of throws in with a deep, you know, he takes a, a with a prayer to the God of Heaven. So the king asks him, and he immediately prays again. He's like, "Okay, God, this is my chance. This is go time, right?" With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it pleases the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And this is a big ask because, I mean, basically he's saying, I want to leave here, leave my job, go all the way back to where I was captured and taken from and exiled from. And, I mean, you don't know how the king's going to respond, right? The king with the the queen sitting beside him asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. And so he's not done yet. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was upon me. This is not a little prayer. This is not a little project. Jerusalem was a major city. The walls were not little walls, these are huge walls, huge gates. And he is going back now to rebuild the entire wall around the city. And he needs safe passage. He needs materials. He needs money. He needs a crew. He needs wood. He needs all this stuff. And the king's like, sure, I'll give it to you. You know, he could have just prayed, God, let me go and check things out. He's like, no, God, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make a difference. Do we pray God-sized prayers? When we see a problem, do we pray, God, would you send someone else to go make it happen? God, I see this brokenness. God, I know there's someone here in our church that can do a good job. Just use them. Give them a burden. Or do we pray, God, use me? I just I'm afraid we don't pray big enough. Rebuilding the city, that's a I mean, that's an impossible task. It took It took four months of prayer and preparation before Nehemiah got his chance. And I'll just give you a little spoiler. Nehemiah did get the chance to go and rebuild the walls. Um, It took him 52 days to rebuild the walls. The gates were restored. uh, And and it all started with a single man that had a burden, that cared enough to pray and to do something about it. And, And so... You just see this repeated prayers of Nehemiah and his community. Man, it it was the first step to the transformation that happened. And that kind of leads me to to my last point. You won't pray if you don't want to pray. And I just feel like for many of us, again, we know we should pray. We know it's important. But down deep, we don't do it because we really don't want to. We get bored with praying. We... Uh, don't make time for it we're like we're too busy everything else is more important and we just don't make it a priority we truly don't want to pray if we want to experience spiritual renewal prayer has to be at the center of it and i think many of us don't pray because we've not really experienced the power of prayer We've not experienced the presence of God in a way where you feel that He is truly speaking into your life. Because when we pray, we're just so busy saying, God, this is what I need. God, this is what I want you to do for me. We don't really listen. Um, Elizabeth Elliott, um, she said this. She said, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between His will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen. And we are giving the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. When we pray, amazing things happen. To close this morning, I want to give you a, a story of one of my favorite revivals in church history. It's one you really don't hear about a lot. Um, uh, and it's about a man named Count Zinzendorf. Anybody ever heard of Count Zinzendorf? So a few people, maybe I see a few people nodding here. I love this story. He lived in Germany, Hernhard, Germany. When he was 27 years old, he started taking in refugees. Um, he had people coming from multiple different countries, and um, and and from the Czech Republic and Moravia and all these different places. And they were Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, and uh, and they were all coming uh, to live there on his kind of Uh, camp or his compound there before long he had 300 refugees living on his estate and he kind of became their spiritual leader they had uh, church services they had meetings and they lived in this village and they prayed together they studied God's word together and they grew together but they weren't getting along because they had a lot of differences so what Zinzendorf did, he was working to address the conflicts. He began visiting the different homes of the different people and, and and talking about unity and studying scripture together. And then they drew up an agreement called the Brotherly Agreement. This was the document with rules that if you're going to live in this community, basically you got to get along. Okay, so it, it's interesting. This is again, this is like 1727 ish. So this is 1700s. Um, On August 5th, 1727, uh, Zinzendorf and about 14 others spent the night in prayer. They were just seeking God. and um, uh, There's some people writing about this time of prayer that they had, and uh, this is how he described it himself. He said, "...the Savior permitted to come upon us, a spirit of whom we had hitherto not had any experience or knowledge." Hitherto we had been the leaders and helpers, but now the Holy Spirit Himself took full control of everything and everybody. One person said this about their times of prayer. They said the people hardly knew whether they belonged to to earth or or, or they had already gone to heaven. I mean, this is like intense prayer times. And so what they decided to do after these prayer meetings is they said, okay, the, the, the fire, the altar of God is never going to go out. We're going to pray night and day. And so uh, on August 27th, a 24-hour prayer ministry was started in this little village in Germany, Hernhardt Germany. Uh, uh, with one person committing to pray one hour every day, they called it the hourly intercession. There are 168 hours. 168 one-hour time slots in a week. They filled that uh, with two or three people per hour. And for for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, two to three people were always praying in this place of prayer. Now, how long do you think it lasted? In this village of 300 people, the church never exceeded uh, 300 people in attendance. This went on for 110 years. 110 years of solid prayer. Um, I I love this story. uh, And and it's not just the adults are praying. The children had their own rotations. The children were praying as well. So what happened? Can you imagine the supernatural power that was unleashed because of this? So what happened? This little community became the greatest missionary sending church in the world. They were really the start of what is the modern day mission movement. I found a map online that showed the places they sent their, uh, their missionaries. Um, from this one little congregation, they sent missionaries all over the world. And since many of the uh, people there, refugees, were from Moravia, they became known as the Moravians. Okay? And so this is the Moravian. And, and they sent out over 100 missionaries in only 25 years. Um, and, and so kind of... We'll go ahead and put the, the next slide back, just the background back up. Their first mission uh, to the, what is the the colonies was to uh, Savannah, Georgia, but they eventually went north up to Pennsylvania. Uh, they bought uh, several tracts of land there. They uh, they founded Nazareth and Bethlehem in Pennsylvania. And those two towns prospered. They grew. They wanted to expand. They found, um, they found 100,000 acres along the banks of Muddy Creek in the Piedmont, North Carolina. So just about 60 miles from here, right? A little less than that. They paid 35 cents an acre for the Wachovia tract. You're starting to put some pieces together who we were talking about here. They started with a, the first village called Bathabra, which meant the House of Passage, because it was meant to be a temporary settlement. Uh, Then they moved to Bethania. Then they established kind of a community called Salem. So when we go to old Salem today, what you are experiencing is the result of a missionary prayer movement from 1727 and a little church in Germany that lasted for 110 years. You see the effects, that it spread. And it was said that the Moravians would have been the largest denomination in the world except that whenever they planted a new church, they just gave it away to another denomination. They weren't concerned about making themselves great. They were just concerned about getting the gospel out. They didn't have just a, an impact on... They had impact on so many other people. There was a, a another story that's amazing about them is... Uh, two brothers were on a boat ride from England to America and they encountered rough seas and they got scared because they thought they were going to drown they were going to die. His brothers were John and Charles Wesley but they noticed there were some guys on this boat that were calm and just praising God in the middle of the storm and they were Moravians. It, le- it made such a dramatic impact on them Right, That Charles Wesley, even though he had been an Anglican, he placed his faith in Christ following a conversation with the Moravian. A few weeks later, John Wesley even placed, pla- placed his faith in trust because of that. Which John Wesley was the founder of the whole Methodist church. Do you see the impact? That a single solitary church can have. And again, this church never exceeded 300 people at any time in its history there in Germany. But they sent out missionary after missionary, person after person. They changed the world as we know it today. And now we have Moravian sugar cookies because of that. (laughs) And Dewey's Bakery. Now, we lived in Winston for a while after I graduated college. I'm telling you, the Moravian, there's a lot of big Moravian churches in Winston-Salem today. They're known for their love feast. They're known for their compassion. They are still active and strong today. And so my question is, right, what would happen if we got serious about prayer? Now, mention Wednesday night we're getting together for prayer. As I talked about last week, these are not big, elaborate, produced. We're not advertising it. We're just saying, if you want to pray, let's go pray. If you want to get in the Word, let's, go pray. let's, let's, let's get in the Word. Um, and so we had 50 people show up last Wednesday night. I hope we have even more this week. We just want to pray. Um, Tuesday mornings, Eugene mentioned, we've had this going for a while now. Small group of people coming on Tuesday mornings at seven thirty in the morning. We meet downstairs for prayer. If you want to pray, come join us. Again, it's nothing, nothing fancy, but it's just people getting on their knees before God to pray. Uh, I just, you know, will the, the question really comes down to: Will we be a church that actually prays? In Mark, Jesus says, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And In the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In James chapter 5, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Every single one of us, we have the opportunity to change our world. We started out today talking about Nehemiah. But will we be like Nehemiah? Will we say, Lord, I am making myself available. God, use me. God, I wanna, I, I'm broken about what I see around me. God, use me. Use me to do your will. Use me to do your work. And so I want to just challenge you with that today. Is that your prayer? Uh, let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that you would just break our heart for the things that break yours, that you would use us to advance your kingdom, to push back the darkness. God, I pray that you would give us a burden for those that are lost, those that are hurting, those that are struggling. Help us to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Just as he shared, as Romans 10 says, uh, how blessed, how powerful are those, you know, those that bring the good news. And and how are people going to hear unless we take the message to them? So God, use us. God, use us. We are available. We are here. And forgive us for our callousness, for our apathy, for our, just, our, our, just our busyness where we don't see the need around us. And Lord, I also want to pray this morning for those that are here that have never started their journey of faith. And the very first prayer that you should pray is a prayer that crying out to God saying, God, save me. God, I'm a sinner. I need saving God. I need you. That's the prayer that God always hears, that God always responds to. So as we close today, Lord, my prayer would be that you would take all of us and break our hearts in such a way that we would be moved to action. Compassion that leads leads to action. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. Lord, just use us. It's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen.